do our autobiography of George Mueller. If you didn't get a page, there on the table there by Braden. Morning, Mary. <laughs> so we're going to be doing chapters 24 and 25 to uh, wrap up the book today. And so we'll start here with this kind of a longer quote. He says, A strong call is on my life in caring, uh, for caring for destitute orphans. 715 orphans are now waiting for admission. Nearly 6,000 orphans were living in the prisons of England because there was no other place for them to go. To win their souls for God, I desire to enlarge the present establishment. Individuals who have chosen not to live for the present time before eternity will have the opportunity to help me care for these children. It is a great honor to be allowed to do anything for the Lord. When the day of recompense comes, our only regret will be that we have done so little for Him, not that we have done too much. So, first thing here is, whether our call is to care for orphans or do some other work, why do we need to live for eternity and not for the present? Braden, can you give one of those sheets? Can you give Mary, Miss Mary one of the sheets? Thank you. Why do we need to live for eternity and not for the present? Devin. Okay, good. That's what God calls us to do, what the Bible tells us to do. Uh, what else? Lila, yeah, Mary. Right, okay. Yeah, if that's where we plan to live up, you know, Jesus, yeah, Jesus talked about laying up treasures in heaven. What happens to treasures on earth? They rust, Braden? They disappear, yeah. So Matthew says they are corrupted or they rust or they are stolen. The moth eats them if it's things that are fabric instead of metal. So all of those things can be lost in some way, but things that we do for Christ will last even if we are forgotten. I think that's an important point because sometimes we feel like, well, we want to be remembered. Let's do things for Christ so that we're remembered. And some people are remembered, but the vast majority of people are not remembered, but the work that they've done for Christ is still worthwhile, and God remembers it. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, right? So don't give up on what you are called to do. He says that it is a great honor to be allowed to do anything for the Lord. How does this differ from a perspective that says it's sort of a burden or a responsibility or something I must do to serve God? Okay, so he's not doing it out of a sense of fear. Okay, good. What, what else goes behind this attitude? It's a great honor to be allowed to do anything for the Lord. When you think about it, you realize truly who God is, who Christ is, and not thinking about it in terms of this is my responsibility. Realizing that he's the creator and the God of the universe is 
saves your soul from a whole different perspective. And you realize that he has the power to save anyone he wants to. You know, if you your friends and relatives, anyone else you reach out to, has the possibility of saving them as well if he wants to. So it's a whole different mindset. Okay. Anything else on this idea? I think the more we come to love God and understand his love for us, the more we willingly want to serve the one who loves us that much. Okay. All right. Mary. It's, it's better to seek the honor from God than other people and do things for our own benefit. Okay. Good. We can leave this as a rhetorical question, but if there's something that you feel like you would want to share, at least in general terms, if you died tomorrow, what do you feel like you might regret from your life? For example, time spent doing blank, money spent doing blank, mm, love spent on, things like that. Like if you were going to fill in the blank with it, yes? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So if we if we love sin in our hearts or if we're careless about maybe we would say our close friends because it's it's a challenge because we need to have friendships with people who are unbelievers to win them for Christ, but the ones that we're influenced by the most if we they're unbelievers, we might regret some of those things. What else? Or other things that we might regret? Yeah, so I was getting lunch, uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, and I had a conversation with the guy who was the waiter, and he, um, I invited him to church, he said something about, I don't live around here, but I took a comparative religions course, and all this stuff really interests me, but I consider myself a Christian, and I had this opportunity to push it further, and I didn't, Right? Like those sorts of opportunities where, you know, we, maybe we start down the right track and then we rationalize in our minds, well, I'm busy or I don't know what to say next or whatever else. Or we, sometimes we just don't even take them at all, right? Okay. And those can be opportunities to witness to the lost. They can also be opportunities to encourage other Christians, right? Because sometimes we find it easier just to talk about things like the weather or complain about things that are going on politically or just the general frustrations of life. And it's not sin necessarily to always talk about those things, but to the extent that we have real opportunities to encourage people, 
and we just settle for mediocre things, particularly if we have just a short time frame. Because what often happens is we talk about general things for a while, and then we get into more serious topics. But honestly, if our focus is on what is most important, we should start with the important things. And if we don't have time to get to the weather and all this other stuff, it's okay, right? Because you can look on a weather app and you can go look online if you want to see people complaining about the state of events in the world. Like, there's other avenues you can get that, but you can't get encouragement from other believers anywhere than in the company of other believers, right? Okay. I think that there's a degree to which, um, this is something I've had to think about, uh, if, so when we went on Maggie's trip, um, they gave us some money to spend on the trip, and then even on the trip down there, I think, I think it was on the airplane, someone announced, well, the stewardess said something about, hey, we have Maggie with us on the trip, and they're going on this thing, and, and several people just unexpectedly handed us some money via the stewardess, and we're like, okay, so what do we do with this? And I think if I were to look back, I think there would have been ways to have spent it better than we did. Not saying it was bad to enjoy things while we were on the trip. I'm just saying when we got back, to the extent that there was money left over, I feel like there's, there's better ways that we could have spent it than on some of the things that we did. Because some of it was, we bought some toys, and then those toys have pretty much sat on the shelf. And you say, well, it wasn't sin per se, because this was something that someone just gave to us for that purpose. But, you know, maybe it would have been better served to say, we're going to go do something together as a family instead of stuff that just accumulates, right? So that might be an example, too. Um, so then he talks about this, if anyone desires to live a life of faith and trust in God. And he lists off four things. He said, first of all, he must really do so or must really trust in God. I do not say it is wrong to make known our financial situation, but it hardly displays trust in God to expose our needs for the sake of getting other people to help us. This is something he was very convinced of. We'll talk in a moment about whether it's biblical or whether we agree with it. Secondly, must be content, whether he's rich or poor, must be willing to leave this world without any possessions. Number three, willing to take the money in God's way, not merely in large sums, but also in small amounts. And fourth, be willing to live as the Lord's steward. My good income, I think it's supposed to be increased even more when I determine that by God's help, his poor and his work would be helped by my money. So which of these statements do you find convicting or disagree with or just, you know, have thoughts about and why? Yes, Devin? I would say number two. Okay. Sure. So, trying to be content and like not if you start like start making more money, you don't have to start spending proportionally. You could spend what you spent before. Sure. And give your money. 
Okay. Yeah, I think this idea of must be willing to leave the world without any possessions fights very contrary to the idea that our goal is to amass as much money as possible in the hopes that when we're not working, we don't run out. And obviously, I think there's wisdom in planning for the future, but I think there also comes a point at which if you have made reasonable preparations for the future, there potentially comes a point where you say, okay, is my goal to get to a point where if I really am smart about all this or fortunate, depending on how you look at it, that you know I could have more money in retirement that I have every year right now? Uh, or would it be better to look at it and say, okay, I've reached a reasonable goal with regard to this. Now what can I do with this money instead? Like, you know, and that's a whole thing that I think we individually and as families have to pray about what that looks like. But at the same time, I just think that, um, you know, we hit a point where you don't need more, right? We just want more. And so, like you were saying, do we keep spending above and beyond just because we can or not? There's trade-offs between time and money, too, that we have to be aware of, right? So sometimes if something is constantly broken, it makes sense to buy a newer thing that doesn't have to be fixed all the time, but that's, you know, those are complicated decisions, right? What are some other, other thoughts on some of these other ones, potentially? Or the same one, if you have more thoughts on it, that's fine, too. Yeah. So if we go all the way back to why he was convinced not to tell everybody about his financial need, anybody remember any of the passages that he mentioned or any of the... Okay, good. Yeah. Braden, can you unlock the doors for me? I don't think we did that after. Thank you. Um, so, uh, yeah. Not know your right hand, not knowing what your left hand is doing. Uh, I feel like there's another one, something about um, your father knows what you have need of before you ask, something like that in Matthew. Um, so, I think... Uh, I think his, his attitude was basically this. God knows what I need before I ask, so if I talk to God about it, God will send the right person along to help, right? Now, what we tend to look at it as is, I need to tell other people what my need is so that they can help me with it. And I don't know that it's wrong per se, but I think he may have a point that there is a greater degree of trust in God if we just talk to God about it than we talk to other people about it. Because then we often have to wait longer and, and for it to show up potentially in unexpected ways. But, you know, I think that we have to be aware of the danger of comparing ourselves to one another and saying, well, if I do it this way and you do it that way, I'm a better Christian than you too. So um, I just think it's interesting because I think about the way that we uh, go about raising money for missions, right? The way that we go about raising money for missions is the complete opposite of what he's recommending to do, Right. It's you go to church and say, I need X amount of dollars, right? Um, and that's just the system that's sort of grown up around missions. But um, 
I think it would be greatly encouraging and somewhat surprising to missionaries if instead of having to ask for money all the time, uh, churches ask them, hey, do you need more money, right? Or just send it to them, expecting and trusting that they were going to spend it the right way. Which then leads us to the point of saying, well, but we don't know if they're going to spend it the right way and we still want control over it, which is part of why we tend to hang on to things. We're like, as long as I have control of this, I can say what happens to it, but if I give it to someone else, now it's in their hands and maybe they're not going to use it the right way. And we can sort of go into this kind of a tailspin about anticipating what will or won't happen based on the decisions that we make. So that's something at least worth thinking through. You know, he says it's not wrong to tell other people your financial need, and I would agree. But he, he was very strongly convinced that it was better, at least for him. And maybe to the degree that we find it easy to depend on ourselves, it is better for us to, just to talk to God about the needs that we have and not to other people. I don't know. Something to think about. What about the other two? This one about being willing to take money in God's way. He talked about people giving him a shilling, which I forget the equivalence between that and a dollar, but it's not very much, right? Let's say for sake of argument, it's 50 cents. If somebody said, hey, I'm going to give you 50 cents, we tend to look down on that and be like, well, you're not really serious about this, right? Right. I mean, well, let's say it's $2, right? The donation amount on all those things you get in the mail, like the minimum is usually like 10 bucks, so they're not really interested in less than that, right? You can write in other, but, um, but can it still be worthwhile to give a little bit here and there? Sure, right? Um, Mary? It can also help us control our spending. And not okay. We get a whole bunch, maybe we want to go out and buy a whole bunch of things. Okay. Yeah. So sometimes God gives us money in small amounts, and sometimes we have opportunity to give to other things in small amounts. This idea of being the Lord's steward. Should we have the attitude that we should help people as God blesses us instead of spend it only on ourselves? I think we'd say yes, right? I think sometimes where we get stuck is what does that look like, right? And the fact that it's more than just money. It's time, it's spiritual gifts. There's a variety of ways that we can spend our lives collectively in the service of other people. Okay? It's easier to talk about than to actually do, do it responsibly. <laughs> sure. I mean, you can just easily give your money away and like, okay, I'm done with that. Right, yeah, but to do it wisely, yeah. Sure. Yeah. And maybe part of it, like you're saying, is, well, I don't want to take the time and the effort to have to think about this, so I'm just not going to do it. Or I'm just going to give it, and then I don't have to worry about it, because now it's their problem, right? Uh, okay. Just some good things to think about, I think. He says a little bit later, I opened the house for 400 orphans today. How precious this was to me after praying every day for seven years. What have you been praying for, for over a long time? Will you keep praying for it? Why or why not? You can just give me a general example of things that we might need to pray for for a long time. Okay. Yeah. What are some obstacles to continuing to pray for it? Yeah. Get bored of it, get discouraged because we don't seem to see an answer. Okay, so lack of discipline on our part. What else? 
or some other reasons why we might or might not continue praying for something a long time. Braden? Okay, perhaps if we're mistaken about whether or not it's been answered, okay. I think if you see evidence in somebody's life that they look like they went further away from the Lord, that can be very encouraging. Okay, yeah. Which then ties into an interesting thing, which is what is our view of God's ability to save people? Because from a human perspective, the further someone goes away from God in terms of their devotion to sin, the harder it is for God to save that person when in reality it's no harder for God to save the person who is extraordinarily religious but still on their way to hell than the person who's incredibly sinful outwardly and, and visibly but also on their way to hell. But we tend to see a vast difference in those things because all we can see is, well, this person seems closer to God because they talk about God things and this person seems really far away because all they do is sin really openly and in detail, right? But yeah, I mean, that is our natural reaction to say, oh, well, this person's sinning more. It's harder for God to save. I think sometimes when it's out of sight and out of mind, like you might say to someone, oh, yeah, I'll pray for that, but then you don't see him again for a couple months or six months or a year, and the less you see them or the less it's there in front of you, the harder it is to remember like, that you So what are some things we can do to help with that, the forgetfulness aspect of consistently praying? Yeah, write it down. Now then there has to be an element of discipline of checking the list, right? Because you could write it down and then throw the paper away, which the writing it down didn't help. Or you could write it down and throw it in a drawer and it gets buried and that didn't help either. So there has to be more steps than just the writing it down, but I think that's a great first step, right? Um, Sometimes I think we assume that to write something down or to rely on something external is a sign of weakness or a sign of, I don't know, mental deterioration, whatever, right? And it may well be, but that doesn't mean that we should abandon the opportunity to use tools to support a good thing. And, and we shouldn't have pride like, well, I don't need this, so I'm not going to do it because... And the reality is there are a lot of things that, uh, so when I was doing visitation, people in the hospitals and assisted living and nursing homes and that kind of thing and at homes, when I was in inner city, there were sometimes, you know, 30 to 50 people on that list, depending on what all was going on. If I did not have a systematic way of tracking that, I would easily forget to go visit someone. Right, And to the extent that I don't regularly keep an eye on uh, what's going on in the lives of the people in the church here and now, it's, it would be easy for me to overlook things sometimes for several weeks. And so the ways that we can accomplish some of those goals, at least for me personally, I feel like, is to have a list of names or a record of some kind, something like that, to keep track of those things. And sometimes we say, well, that feels impersonal or like you don't really care about people because if you cared about them, then you wouldn't need the list. Well, sometimes it's just the fact that when you start talking about more than a couple of people, it, it's a lot of work to keep track of all of the details. And it would be better to rely on a system that feels slightly impersonal than not to do it at all, right? And maybe in time you get to a point where there are fewer distractions and more time so that you don't need the tools, but 
better to build the habit using tools than it is to say, well, I don't need them in some sort of pride or self-reliance, right? Um, you mentioned distraction. Okay. I was just thinking that my dad and people from an older generation had less distractions and it seemed like they had a better ability to remember things. Okay. That's a fascinating topic about to the extent that we, our brains are flexible and we re rewire them for constant input and large bucket loads of information getting dumped in. And that's true. To the extent that your brain is oriented toward those kind of tasks, it's not going to be great at long periods of concentration. Um, so either we have to get rid of all of the distractions or we have to work really hard at the discipline aspect of it, of continually coming back to it. And so, I mean, so there's, so from the perspective of sermon preparation, there's been decent stretches for me over the last four years where instead of having, you know, here's six hours in a day that I could work on a sermon, it might be 30 minutes here and 30 minutes there. Now, I could look at that as a bad thing, or I can say, as long as it gets done, if I consistently do the 30 minutes that adds up to the six hours or the eight hours or whatever, great. But the problem comes in where, we, where it gets really, really short chunks, like, well, I'm going to do five minutes of Bible reading, or I'm going to do two minutes of prayer, and that's all we ever make time for. You know, there's a time and a place potentially for both the short fitting around things and the longer dedicated stretches, and I have to work at it. There's this uh, example that he talks about the boiler at one of the orphanages breaks and he prays two things in connection with the repairs. First of all, that God would change the north wind into a south wind just because of how the building was situated and in terms of temperature and so forth and they would give to the workmen a desire to work. So if you remember reading the chapter, how did God answer his prayer? Okay, yes to both, Mary. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So, so why should we then be specific when we pray? If we pray, God be with so and so, is are, can we be pretty sure God's going to do that? Yeah, because He said, "I won't leave or forsake you," as to His people, Braden. Okay, Maggie, were you thinking something? Oh, okay. What what is the difference between praying God be with so and so and God will you help this person who is sick today to be better tomorrow so he can go to work? 
What's the difference between those two things? Okay, yeah, to the extent that our goals are more focused in prayer, we can see God answer those prayers, which leads to opportunities for increased faith and increased rejoicing as God answers them one way or the other, right? An increased witness, sure, right, because then you can say, all right, I didn't expect this to happen, but look what God did, and you can talk about this to someone, all right, good, okay. So, is it a lot more work to pray really specific things? Yeah, because we have to think about it but it's probably good for us and the people around us, lost or saved, if we do so. He said, as I expected, so it has been, as he sort of wraps up this part of his journal, the reports of this institution have been used by God to convert many people. In thousands of instances, believers have been benefited through them, being comforted, encouraged, led to simply believe the word of God and to trust in him for everything. So here's my question. Mueller's life was kind of difficult, right? Was it worth it for Mueller to give up so much toward this goal that he was able to see accomplished in terms of living what he considered to be a life of faith as a testimony to other people? Was it worth it that he went through all the things he went through? He felt it was. He felt like it was, yeah. What about for you and I? As a testimony that we're still talking about today, Okay. years later. Yeah. What are some reasons why we would be unwilling to follow the same path? And I'm not saying we have to. I'm not saying he is the example. Jesus is the example. But what are some obstacles to us being willing to live more like he lived than we tend to? A thousand kids. Yeah. That's just terrifying. Yeah. Huge responsibility. Okay. But think about where it started out. Like he, he worked up to that, right? Yeah. But he still tackled a pretty big thing. I think they started out with fifty or hundred kids they were looking after, so so the scope of the responsibility could be really intimidating. What else? What are some other reasons that we might tend to not go that route? Our flesh doesn't want to do hard things. Okay, don't want to do hard things. Mary? Um, he went through some difficult times in his personal life as well. Okay, yeah, I think we tend to think, and I don't know if this is what you're saying, but I know that I, as I was reading through this, we tend to think that to the extent that we are more devoted to God, we'll have less difficulty in life, right? And it almost seems like the more devoted to God he was, the more difficulty that he had, right? So there were days that he wasn't sure if he was going to eat or have the heat on or his son died, his daughter almost died, lots of other people around him had to deal with things with sickness and all those sorts of things. They had people that he poured his life into who just walked away, people that faithfully supported them for a while then didn't want anything to do with him, like all of those things he had to deal with on top of the fact that his life was hard, right? And, uh, you know, it's one thing to have your friends abandon you and people who are around you uh, get sick and die or to 
um, have unexpected bills, when you feel like you're in a position to weather those things on your own because you have financial resources or connections or whatever else to sort of smooth out the bumps, right? But if you have not a penny to your name, and then all these things come, you either have to depend greatly on God or walk away from Him, right? Um, so he gave up a lot toward this goal, but he was convinced that it was a worthwhile goal. I mean, we seem convinced of it because we're studying, as Jonathan mentioned, we're studying his life. And I think it would, be, it would do us well, not that we have to do the exact same thing. I don't think God is calling every person in this room to go start an orphanage for a thousand kids, right? But the example of saying, I will trust in God and not myself, I don't need all of the things that people in this world around me say that I need to be happy, and all those sorts of things, those I think are lessons that we should consider carefully. He uh, gives a letter from one of the orphans, and I just, uh, I'm going to read it for you, and then I'd like to hear your impressions on it. Most beloved sir, with feelings of gratitude and great thankfulness to you for all the kindness I received while under your care, and for now apprenticing me to a suitable trade to earn my own living, I write to you these few lines. I arrived at my destination safely and was kindly received by my employer. <coughs> Dear sir, I thank you for the education, food, clothing, and for every comfort. But above all, I thank you for the instruction from God's word I received in that orphan house. There I was brought to know Jesus as my Savior. I hope to have him as my guide through all my difficulties, temptations, and trials in this world. With him for my guide, I hope to prosper in my trade, and thereby show my gratitude to you for all the kindness I have received. Please accept my gratitude and thanks. I hope you will have many, many more years to care for children like me. I am sure I will often look back with pleasure and regret to the time I was in that happy home, with pleasure that I lived there and with regret that I left it. Please accept my grateful thanks and give my love to my teachers. Any impressions on hearing that response to his work? Yeah. Now, he only mentions one letter, at least in this abridged version, of the thousand and some kids that were in his care and probably more over the course of the years. Um, so it could very well be that like the, the lepers that Jesus healed, not many letters of gratitude got sent back. So I don't want to overstate the degree of encouragement that he received. But if you poured your life out and you had that impact on one person, do you, do you think it would have been worthwhile? And to the extent that it was more than just that one who wrote him back, uh, I think we begin to see the scope of why he saw it as a privilege and an opportunity more so than a burden and a difficulty, although by human standards much of his life was a burden and a difficulty. So, Any other thoughts on that letter? That it was a happy home. Okay. Yeah. So we tend to think a happy home means our kids have all the toys that they want and never have any difficulty and all those sorts of things. And this orphan whose parents were both dead or had abandoned him was convinced it was a happy home because he found Jesus in it. Okay? Mary? Getting a letter like that is a reward in itself. Yeah. 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 
There's something to be said for us expressing gratitude because I think it's easy for us to assume that it's known, but there's something quite meaningful about hearing it expressed specifically. Okay? Good. One last thing here as we, as we wrap up our study of the book and the study this morning. In March of 1860, he writes this, In no other year have we had greater cause for thanksgiving on account of all the spiritual blessing among the children than during the last, and we look for even further and greater blessings. In May of the previous year, 1859, he had written this, During the past year, we have not seen as great and sudden a work of the Spirit of God among the orphans as during the previous years. So, what could we potentially conclude from the contrast between great spiritual response in 1860 and seeming lack of spiritual response in Okay. Yeah. All right. Evan? Okay. Now, just for sake of accuracy, it actually was two years earlier that the girl had died in May of 57, because I was just, I was trying to remember that too. So perhaps it's more the contrast between this huge response to the girl's death in 57, maybe 58, a decline in 59, because there was no significant event that came into their lives, and then for whatever reason, God did something in 1860, and so perhaps it was the contrast between the larger outpouring in 57, 58, that 59 seemed like not very much. So maybe part of it too is just our perspective on things because we forget quickly like, I don't know how many times you've had a conversation where you say, oh, we were in such and such place with these people doing this thing and someone else will pipe up and they'll say, oh, no, it was this place with these people doing that thing. And so if we quickly forget the events of our lives, um, it would be quite possible to have a sense of discouragement because it feels like not much is going on because there was this huge increase here. And then to have it renewed as God continues to bless maybe the long-term effects of that. Um, some of the older girls talking to some of the younger girls, uh, perhaps something with preaching. He doesn't really go into the specifics, but there's a variety of factors that might have influenced it. And so, you know, there's moments when like Elijah, we're like, I'm the only one following God and not much is happening for him. And God's like, actually. Okay, what else? Any other thoughts on this? The contrast between these things? Mary? Sometimes God does things in his own time, and we have to be patient. Yeah, yeah. We should always ask ourselves, if we don't see much spiritual fruit, what am I not doing to live up to what God wants me to do? 
but we should also acknowledge the possibility that God is causing us to wait because He wants to increase our faith and dependence on Him. And if our response is, well, not much seems to be happening, not much seems to be going on, I'm going to quit, then God's not going to bless us in the way that if we press through that difficulty uh, and He continues to work. Any other thoughts as we wrap up Life of Mueller and so forth? Again, not a perfect man, but someone who tried his best to live a life of faith in God, which is quite honestly what we should all be doing. It's going to look different from time to time and from place to place and from person to person, but the general attitude and goal should be the same. And uh, to the extent that considering these things helps us toward that goal, I think it's been a worthwhile thing for us to consider. So let's pray and then we'll head into the morning service. Dear God, we thank you for this morning, for your blessings, for your goodness. Help us to be willing to consider doing hard things because we expect that it is worth doing and because we see it as a privilege to follow in the example of Jesus. Just pray that you will bless this morning. In Christ's name, amen.